Amen. Good morning, church family. I want to draw your attention to a couple things as our praise team makes us the stage. And thank you all so much for setting the stage for the Word of God this morning. Uh, December, the Advent season, marks the beginning of our biggest giving towards missions. And that is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Some of you, how many of you know who Lottie Moon is? Raise your hand if you've heard of Lottie Moon. Some of you have, some of you haven't. Lottie Moon was a missionary in China. She gave her life to reach those in China, and she was returning back to the United States. She died Christmas Eve on the boat right back, so that's why she gets the Christmas offering named after her, so for her heart for missions and her, her death right around the Christmas time. Um, <clears throat> there is a prayer guide in your, book this, in your bulletin this morning, and so I'd like to bring that to your attention. Please make this a part of your weekly prayer this week. Uh, I'd like to do a quick prayer this morning, if I can, for the first entry here. This is for Tim and Tina and uh, Sean and Shelley. They are working with churches in Central America and in the Caribbean. And it says here, to quote Sean, he says, Our prayer is that churches will be found amongst many who come to work alongside us and that some would choose to build their experience in Central America. So be praying for them and let's have a word of prayer for them and all the missionaries will be supporting the this time of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the work these missionaries are doing. We lift up Tim and Tina this morning and Sean and Shelley. We ask that you will continue to build those churches and help to fulfill the future vision that John saw in Revelation 7, that there will be a multitude from every nation, every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and praising your name. Uh, you are among the multitudes of worshipers, and we long to see that day, God, every tongue, tribe, and people that is there. Help us to be diligent until that day comes. God, be with us now as we look to hear the words from your lips in Luke chapter 13. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, is this mine? Okay, thank you. Uh, I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 13. Now, some of you may be disappointed that I'm not doing a Christmas series, but uh, I am wearing a Christmas vest, so just settle for that, and you'll just have to deal with that in the tie. I, I believe we are committed here to the systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God in its context for the growing and the uh, continuation of growth in our faith and for maturing you. My job is to deliver all those sheep that are in my care in as good a shape as I can to Jesus Christ. And the systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God, verse by verse, week by week, is what I believe will make you the most healthy uh, under my care and under the care of the Savior. So we're going to march straight through Luke in December and uh, keep, keep on with the text here. And uh, here we are in Luke chapter 13. Now, before we begin reading this text, let me give you a quick reminder and refresher. Jesus has been preaching to crowds and multitudes and to the disciples in particular. We ended chapter 12 with him giving a discourse on how you should try to settle or repent with those that you're going to court with outside of court while you're on the way so you don't have to pay every penny. And so it was a call to repent early. And here in this passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus will be confronted with a couple of tragedies in his day, how we're to think about that, uh, which is going to set up framework for repentance, and then we're going to see the parable of the tree that did not bear fruit. So let's, let's look at this passage together. Uh, read it with me, church. Uh, you read along quietly as I read it aloud. Be in the side here. In your bulletin it's printed, and then in your Bibles or in your handheld devices there. Luke 13, 1-9. There were some present... At that very time, 
who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir... Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy and errant and infallible word. May he write this truth on all of our hearts. Because, and if you know this, say it with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it, church. But the word of our God endures forever. How many of you know who George Whitfield is? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of George Whitfield. Okay, all three of us in this room. Uh, George Whitfield is someone that you should be acquainted with. He was one of the greatest preachers of the 18th century, born in the early 1800s, died in the early 1700s, died in the late. Uh, 1700s. He was doing ministry around the time Pennsylvania became a state, to give you an idea historically of where we are. He was a minister born in England, but made frequent trips to the United States. Of course, at that time, we were not the United States. We were the colonies of England, the 13 colonies. And he would frequent Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, George Whitfield is noted for many things. Uh, He was a great orator and preacher of the gospel. This is back before there were These little guys here, these little lapels to help preachers project their voice. It is recorded that Whitfield would have crowds of up to 20,000 people. Now remember, this is before we had any way to amplify the voice. He had to do this in what we in the profession call open-air preaching without the aid of any sort of amplification. Now keep in mind that the largest churches of his day could only seat around 7,000 people. So that would mean to host crowds of 20,000 people, Whitfield would have to be where? Outside in fields and project his voice so that 20,000 people could hear him. He was so well known that even famous actors, and obviously they didn't have television then, so it would have been play actors, uh, were envied his ability to, to speak, his oratory ability. I don't know that they always admired his message, but they longed to have some of his skills as a great orator and preacher. Uh, David uh, Garcin, I think, I think he's got a place named after him still in England now, greatest actor of the day when Whitfield was alive. He once stated this, he would trade all of his wealth that he had earned if he could say Mesopotamia the way that Whitfield pronounced it. So that was just kind of how he was known among the people of his day. Uh, and as you would guess, 
any famous preacher will have imitators. People would try to imitate him, the young preachers and the old preachers. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where I fall. I think I'm still in the young preacher crowd, although I've been told 45 is the cutoff with the exception of 47 in some cases, so I've got a few years left. But they would all try to imitate him. Well, during Whitfield, at the height of his popularity... Uh, There was a noble family in Britain. They were having a cocktail party at their home. And their young child, who was around six or seven, who had been taken to hear George Whitfield preach a sermon, and actually had been taken to hear him preach the very text that we're looking at this morning. And at this cocktail party, this group wanted to hear this young boy imitate Whitfield because apparently he, he had got his accents down and could say Mesopotamia the way he could. And so they wanted to hear this small child speak and preach like George Whitfield. But they weren't doing it because they liked the message of George Whitfield. It was all sort of to make fun of George Whitfield in games as they were drinking together in the higher echelon crust of that time period's English family. And this young boy stepped up in front of this crowd at the home and here's what he said He said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish, which is in the text that we just read this morning. And something happened when he said that. The Spirit of God that had fallen on George Whitfield and caused the repentance of thousands coming to Jesus Christ fell on this young boy. And instead of laughing and jeering and making fun of George Whitfield, silence fell over the room. It was so convicting that they actually dismissed the party and all went home afterwards. That feel of that story is something what this feels like in the opening of chapter 13. As Jesus has told them here, you can't discern the times back in chapter 12. You're better at discerning the weather. You don't understand what is happening right in front of you. You don't understand that God is embodied right here in front of you. You can't read that. You lack discernment. Here they say, oh, we can discern. Here's what we'll discern. And they go into, in the beginning, if we can rewind the tape here, back to 13 verse 1. They talk about um, Galileans who were killed as they were in the middle of worshiping and offering sacrifices to the Lord. Now, we don't, don't know a lot about this event. It's only recorded in Luke here. It's not recorded in the other Gospels. I can tell you a few quick observations here that may help us. One... You'll notice here Pilate's name is mentioned in the latter part of the verse. First thing I will tell you about Pilate, crowds made Pilate nervous. Right? Anytime a crowd is around, he's nervous. Right? We see this when Jesus is on trial. He is saying, the crowd chanting, give us Barabbas, washes his hands. He does not like the pressure of a crowd. He finds them dangerous. So there is that looming in the back. We also know that he was very good at helping them with their waterworks throughout the city of Jerusalem uh, and throughout all of the land there. They had to use aqueducts and things, and a lot of building and construction went into that. And apparently, as it says here in another section here, so there's one tragedy here where, whether by his command or by accident, some Jews that were worshiping God were killed in the midst of offering their sacrifice and their blood is mingled with the blood of the lamb or the oxen or whatever they're bringing. And then we also see a reference here on down in the verses of a 
of a building falling on some of them that were, or some kind of structure falling on and killing 18. Jesus references that here in this passage. And so we see there's two tragedies here. One the crowd brings up and one that Jesus brings up too and is aware of. And what they're trying to say is, the line they're trying to draw is, here is this tragedy, this public tragedy. The line they're drawing is then therefore to the people that died and died painful, horrific ways, like having a building dropped on you. It's a pretty bad way to go. And what they're saying is, and the conclusion they're drawing is simply this. Well, these people that this tragedy happened to must have done something awfully sinful in order for that to have fell on them, right? Because of all places you should be safe, you should be safe while you're worshiping the one true and living God, right? Like what, should, what tragedy should befall you while you're in the middle of worshiping God? Maybe Satan worshipers, we would expect a building to collapse in on them. But those who are worshiping the one true and living God, obviously they must have done something there. And what is Jesus doing in this passage? He's saying, no, 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 you misunderstand. Because there's a question behind the question, right? Isn't that what we're taught? There's the presenting question. This tragedy has befallen and has happened. But Jesus sees the question behind the question. The question of the heart. And it's the question of the heart that he's going to address here. The question of the heart is this in this passage. Why do good things happen to bad... Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? These are supposed to be people who worship the one true and living God. They had a building fall on them. How is this possible? How is their blood being mingled with the sacrifices they brought as they are doing steps of obedience? Why did this even happen? And what is Jesus saying here? You're drawing the wrong lines. You're making the wrong conclusions. First thing he's pointing out to us is simply this, right? And we see this from his ministry. You can't read the mind of God when tragedy strikes. For example, whenever Katrina happened and the levees broke in New Orleans, people made all kinds of assumptions. Well, clearly the people of New Orleans are very sinful. And God is striking them down. Well, the parts of the, the town that bounced back right away were the casinos and the places that are unmentionable from the pulpit. Right? They, they bounced back like that. No problem. They're not any more sinful than the people of New York or L.A. or anywhere like that. Our own, more recently, when there's a tragedy like what happened in Wisconsin. Did you all see what happened in Wisconsin at the parade where somebody plowed through there, killed children and killed men? Did those children and men deserve that or were they supposed to get that? You know, why do good things happen, bad things happen to good people? Or whenever the flood happened here in Tennessee with our fellow, our fellow Tennesseans. And, and people's homes and lives were swept away in the floodwaters here just this past fall. What do we make of all those things? Well, you can't just jump and say those who are receiving that kind of um, tragedy and pain and suffering and loss have a direct correlation to tragedy happening. Now, sometimes that's the case, right? Sometimes our sins... Come back home and roost, and we live with those consequences. You know, my mamma, I loved her dearly for years. Started smoking cigarettes when she was, um, you know, probably a teenager. And she is dying with lung cancer and can't breathe. And I wouldn't wish that death on anybody. That's a horrific way to die, to die from lung cancer and not being able to breathe. And before she's taken to the hospital last time, she looks over at us and says, What all did I do to deserve pain like this? 
right? Well, she's getting there closer to what Jesus is after in this passage because what Jesus wants the people to do is instead of drawing a line from the tragedy to the people who received the tragedy and are burdened and destroyed and hurt by it, he's drawing a line from the tragedy to us. And here is what he's saying. You're asking the wrong question. Your heart question is wrong. Here's what the heart question should be. It shouldn't be, why do bad things happen to good people? The question should be this. Why does anything good ever happen to anyone at all? (laughs) You see, this world is so fractured and ravaged by sin. Anytime anything good ever happens, it is because God is behind it, authoring it, and willing it. If you enjoyed a lovely Thanksgiving dinner, which I hope you did this past week with family and loved ones, it's because God has willed that and given that to you as a gift. Anything good in your life is because God has given it. So we need to, we need to recalibrate our hearts and stop asking foolish questions like the folks here and start asking sincere, honest questions uh, as Jesus is pointing us to here. All right, now... Not only this, but he makes a point here about repentance. Notice what it says here. Um, Do you think the Galileans were worse sinners than any of the other Galileans because they suffered in the way? Look at verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you, what does it say, church? Unless you, come on, say it with me, repent, right? And then we skip down and look what he does again here. Verse 5 on another strategy. No, I tell you, but unless you, what's it say again, church? Repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is saying here, not only should you draw the line to you and ask the real heart question, but you should further go, go a little bit step further and do this. When tragedy strikes, you should realize that whether or not for the grace of God, that should be me. And then that should press in on your heart need for repentance in your life. Tragedy, sickness, death, and suffering should press in on our hearts and souls the need for repentance. I just spoke to someone this weekend, and he was telling me the secret trick to selling life insurance. So if there's any life insurance salesman watching this online or in this room, here, here is their main sales pitch. This is what they do. They appeal to one of two things in everybody that they talk to. They appeal to either their greed or their need, right? Because you don't want to lose all your stuff you've worked for, right? You're going to need this life insurance, right? You're appealing to the greed or the need. You know, we're all going to die eventually. And so it's best if you don't put this burden on your family, go ahead and take care of the need that will be in the future anyway by life insurance. Well, I am sad to say I, I had a little hobby for a while where I would collect gospel tracks and my, 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 can I say there are a lot of bad gospel tracks out there, like a lot. Like I would say 90% are bad, like the vast majority are poorly written because they actually play on one of the two things. Most gospel tracks play on greed of an individual and their soul and not on the need of mankind. Let me give you an example. Would you like to have peace with God? Well, of course I'd like to have peace, right? Everybody wants peace. At a minimum, some of you probably got in line at Bass Pro to grab your peace this Friday morning, didn't you? You know what I'm talking about, Zach. Come on, that was funny. I got it when he was drinking there. Anyhow, I'd like to have peace. Oh, come to Jesus. 
No mention of repentance. No mention of the, of the fact that you must be broken and contrite before God, that God grows closer to the brokenhearted, right? No. Or, do you want to go to hell? You need to trust Jesus, right? It's just fire insurance. This is a pitch for fire insurance. Christianity is boiled down to just merely not having to go to hell. And that is a sad, short-changed, greed appeal to a human soul. And Jesus is saying in this text what? You need to repent, right? You need a relationship with me. And the relationship with me only happens if you repent and trust me. I was reading this week, or a couple weeks ago actually, a very interesting article by a Christian marriage counselor. And he made the following observation, and I thought this fits really well with what I'm preaching Sunday. Here's what he said. He said, people don't fall out of love in marriages. He said, people fall out of repentance in a marriage. Isn't that interesting? When you stop repenting in your marriage, it builds bitterness, anger, and left unchecked leads to explosions, right? It, lack of repentance, lack of owning of sin always creates a separation and devastation in any relationship. I have an illustration of this. And even when confronted by authority figures like Jesus or the police, people are still more inclined to be defensive and to repent. It's our general sinful default setting. Becky and Adeline traditionally go shopping on Thanksgiving weekend, which leaves me and the boys to do what we want. All right, boys not. Right, here we go. Me, Xander, and Asher. And I decided what would be fun for the three of us. Oh, here's what I gave them two options. I said, we can either put up the Christmas tree and surprise mom and Adeline when they get back, or we can go to the movies. And they're like, we don't want to put up the tree. Let's go to the movies, right? <laughs> so we elected to go to the movies. And so I bought the tickets online because I'm always worried Thanksgiving weekend about there being seating because, you know, it's a very busy time of year. People are out and about. So I got my tickets. We're heading to the movie theater. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I never get good parking, hardly ever. Like, I don't know if it's because I've made comments and sermons about praying for parking spots and how dumb I think that is, but I never get good parking anywhere I go. And so we pull into the movie theater and behold, like for the first time in a long time, there's a parking spot, two spaces from the front door ticket master, okay? You can, you can see the ticket master through the window. Yeah, I know you know what happens. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I know you want to. You just can't wait to tell it. You can, you can, you can reiterate details when it's over whenever I'm done. So I, uh, I'm, I'm the son of a brick and block contractor and, you know, used to backing the truck into stuff. So I pull in. I've got in reverse and I'm inching my way back to make sure I've got plenty of clearance to get in the parking spot. And right away, a Subaru pulls in. A Subaru Outback pulls into that spot as I'm inching my way back into that spot. It's exactly right. What your face was is exactly what I did. I was like, are you kidding me? So what do I do in a very Christ-like manner? I lay the horn on, you know what I mean? And which communicates my unhappiness with what they've just done. And then I go up and I have to park now seven spots up because that one was, now I'm like 10 away. I can't really see the ticket master as well. And I'm angry. So I'm getting the boys. I'm walking angrily down. And, uh, and so I, as I'm walking by, I'm trying to live in this tension between turning the other cheek, which by the way, that doesn't just always mean letting people walk all over you. That's showing yourself as an equal in the place, right? You show the other cheek as an equal thing. So that tension 
and uh, trying to be a good Christian witness in front of my boys. But I happen to see that the driver of the Subaru has the window cracked this much. I don't know why. It was cold outside, but their windows cracked that much. I said, this is my opportunity. <laughs> so I just walked by and said, that was extremely rude. And I just kept walking. And two boys jumped up out of the car, two teenage boys. What did you say? And then I said, I said that was extremely rude. <laughs> I said, well, your truck should have been faster. And I felt the anger welling. <laughs> but I said, I'm not here to beat down some 18-year-old boys tonight. <laughs> I'm here to watch a movie with my boys and make memories. I said, come on, boys, let's go in and watch the, watch the movie. So we get in, scan my app with the tickets, and there's, much to my delight, there is a police officer from Johnson City PD that was standing next to the ticket master and saw the whole thing unfold. <laughs> And, and so a guy comes in behind me. He's like, man, talk about rude. That was so rude. And the police officer thought the guy behind me was saying that about me in the truck. He said, no, he was in the right. He said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He said, the guy, the person, the Subaru was extremely rude to him. He's like, yes, you're right. And uh, he said, well, you, and the guy behind me said, well, aren't you going to do your job and go out there and say something to them? <laughs> and so I said, come on, boys, let's go watch the movie. I was like, I paid to see drama on the silver screen. I didn't pay to live drama tonight at the movies. And so we went in, come back. I said, well, I'm going to get popcorn, Dad. I was like, you know what? Yeah, we got to do the whole popcorn. So we're going to get popcorns. We're going back. Police officer walks up to me and said, hey, listen, that lady waited a while until you uh, went in. You know, they came in for just a minute. And I told her, I said, hey. Did you know you nearly caused two accidents? You, call, you almost wrecked the truck that was... She said, well, that truck wasn't moving. He said he was backing into the spot, which obviously she knew that. If the police officer standing in the building saw me backing into the spot, she knew what I was doing. And he said, and second of all, there was a car behind you. You nearly, you cut them off. You cut two people off and you nearly wrecked them as well. You nearly caused two accidents tonight. So faced with the authority telling her she's wrong on two fronts, what's the response? Well, the truck just wasn't moving. No repentance. No, I'm sorry. Like, I would have been totally satisfied. She said, I'm sorry, we're in a hurry, whatever. I think I could have lived with that, right? But it's just a bowing up. And that's just the general default setting, right? So here's my point. If you cut me off in traffic or do me wrong, you're forever going to be a sermon illustration and all for years and years to come. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> here's the point. The call to repentance is hard without the help of the Holy Spirit, right? It's a divine fruit and work. And that's where we shift gears here into this illustration of the tree. Now, I'm going to move through this quickly because we have a little bit of time left, but not a lot of time. And let's look at this closely. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Uh, let's advance to verse 6 now. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. All right, so the first thing we're seeing here, and this is the first kind of point, if you're a note taker, I would recommend you take this. Uh, this is about fruit and not foliage, right? God looks for fruit, not foliage in our lives, right? Uh, we, we have a lot of rubrics in the church that we try to measure success by. I would argue that you can't measure all things that are spiritually happening. It's not, not easy to do, uh, but we can generally measure like... Uh, deacons, dimes, and how much duct tape we're using. Like those are kind of the rubrics we continue. It's all foliage measurements. How many people that are there, right? Uh, so 
But here's the reality. I think of the passage where Jesus is at the end of time and he's telling people uh, that, uh, depart from me, I never knew you, right? Because in this passage here, it's about fruit and not foliage. Uh, let's look at Matthew. Keep your thumb where you are for just a minute. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 7.15 for just a second. Because the words of Jesus in 7.15 ring ever true in this verse and in my own heart and mind as I was thinking through this. It says the following, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their, what's it say, church? Fruits right? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So is every healthy tree because good fruit bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. All right. So what is the fruit that we're talking about in this passage? It's the fruit of repentance, right? Being able to repent. And what does that mean? That means to be in agreement with God about your sin. That means to be broken over your sin. And it means to do a 180 and run the opposite direction from that sin. That fruit is only going to come from people who truly love the Lord. We should be a people, the Bible seems to outline the importance of the, the main once and for all repentance when we come to Jesus and we give our life to Him, the capital R repentance. But then we adopt a life of being repentors, right? We repent often and frequently. This is important for us in the modern church. Listen to me closely here, right? Everybody tune in. Put whatever you're doing, if you're playing Angry Birds or whatever the new game is down, listen to me right now. You need to hear this part. We live in a time where churches are built and focused on the gifting of the people. Okay? There are whole denom- there's a whole denomination built on gifting of tongues and speaking in tongues. And that one gift, and that's the major that they focus on. Okay? That's dangerous to have as a primary focus. Because what we're learning in this parable is that God is concerned not with gifts and foliage, but with fruit. Remember what I said back to that scene at the end of time? People come and they're standing in line at the great white throne judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not preach on your behalf? Lord, Lord, did we not do uh, feed the, the poor in your behalf? Lord, Lord, did we not clothe those who were without a cloak? Uh, Lord, Lord, did we not sing beautiful songs uh, to you? Lord, Lord, did we not do cast out demons for you? And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of, sin, of iniquity. I what? I never knew you. Here's my point. It is possible for people to fake gifts. You can fake it, but you won't fool the Lord. But when it comes to repentance, that is the path to knowing Jesus Christ. Do you see that this morning? It is dangerous to build a life on gifts and focus on gifts alone apart from the fruit of repentance. Second observation here in this parable. God's mercy holds out the opportunity for repentance. God's mercy holds the opportunity out for repentance. In this parable, we learn this tree has not produced fruit, the fruit of repentance in years, three years to be exact. Now, <clears throat> the owner wants to do what? Cut it down. Let's plant a new one there, one that's going to produce for the 
for, the, for a prophet. But the vine dresser here, which is us, this is an illustration for us here, says, no, wait, let me dig around it, let me work with it, let me see if I can get it there, right? Here's, <laughs> here's what we're seeing. God has a heart to give people time to turn to Him. They may not turn to Him as quickly as you want or as I want, but don't count that out too fast, right? Give a little patience. Um, I've, I've not done a lot of church discipline cases as a pastor, but I've done a few. And one of the things that we've always done to kind of keep in spirit with this text is when it comes to the members meeting, the business meeting, where it comes time to remove them from this fellowship with them, uh, I'll say, now, is there anyone here who feels and believes they can reach this brother or sister? And if you do, we will give you more time and we will delay the discipline process because God wants us to have hearts where we are patient and we are encouraging repentance, and we are not quick to grab the X and just cut the tree off at the base, right? Okay. So what we learn here is mercy holds wide the door of opportunity, right? And then one final observation from this parable here, and we're going to be done, and that is simply this. The opportunity to repent may not be presumed upon. God has given you an opportunity this morning to turn and repent to Him again. He has been faithful and merciful. He's holding the door open for you. Uh, He began to, you know, you think about this. Jesus did such great ministry all the way up to this point in Luke. And Matthew records that same ministry. Talks about, woe to those cities in Calpurnium. Woe to these cities that He had done all these miracles in. Because He said, if these were done here... In Sodom, what we did here in Sodom, that city would have continued on. And I think about that passage a lot. And I think about what do people need to turn to Christ today? I didn't close with this in the other service, but I, I, I meant to. So I thought, what if Jesus were to come right now to Carter County? I want you to think about this. What if Jesus started on the West End at the Sycamore Shoals Hospital and he healed every person in the hospital. They all got to leave and they just just shut Sycamore Shoals down, put a few people out of work, right? Then he walked up, went to visit Thomas at Fish Springs and he walked, Thomas and Michelle, stepped out on the water at Fish Springs and walked from Fish Springs, Merida, all the way up into Johnson County on Watauga Lake, just walked all the way up there, performed that miracle, right? How would the people of Carter County react? How would we receive that when he got done doing all that? If he were to take a stroll down Elk Street, I think the people would have been just as ready to lay hands on him and crucify him now as they were in biblical times, right? You put me out of a job. How could you do that, right? Who do you think you are? So arrogant to do such things, right? (laughs) The time is short. Jesus is telling us here, We are to turn to Him now. Some of us are already on borrowed time. And we are presuming on the mercy of God. Some of you have been, right? Some of you were presumptuous in Thanksgiving. You just presumed your spouse would do the dishes. Or you presumed your spouse would do this or that while you laid there and took a nap. That's presumptuous and it creates... Nobody likes to be presumed upon, right? Let me me kind of close with this quote from Spurgeon. Uh, I, uh, I love this quote. Spurgeon said, No one ever served God by doing things tomorrow. If we honor Christ and are blessed, it is by the things that we do today.
Don't delay repentance. As I said, some of us are on borrowed time. Some of us are on borrowed time. Um, All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this word here today. Lord, as we have seen the need for repentance and God, at so many times in our relationship with you and our relationship with others, we have, we have been defensive. We have, we have nourished bitterness and anger when what we truly needed to do was own our sin, ask for forgiveness, bring that restorative salve over and over again to our relationship with you, with you first and to our relationship with others. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today, I ask, I beg, I plead, if there's anyone who's far from you, that they would turn to you, Lord, and that they would be saved and that they would know you today, God. Know you now and know you forever. Lord, as we have heard from preachers of yesterday, many of us have come in here with perfunctory prayers and we, our sin has groaned as our prayer life has suffered. But God, may we be a people who our prayers are rich with repentance. And as it grows rich with repentance, our sin life is put to death, God. Help us to be these people who bear this fruit in the precious name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're now going to sing a song of response to the truth that is preached this morning. If you're here today, don't know Christ, won't you repent and know him? Won't you come and be in agreement with him and have relationship with him? Or if you just want to pray and repent, the altar is open. I'm in the back. I'll be happy to pray with you as we sing this song. Please stand.